Middle East on the brink, North Korea on the brink, Iran increasing its aggression, elections in Taiwan. Look, there's a lot of global instability as we ourselves plunge into primary season. How have you sheltered your savings and investments from potential major setbacks to the economy? You think it can happen here? It can happen here, but it's not too late to diversify an old IRA or 401k into gold. And Birch Gold Group can help you with that. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. As opposed to many other investments, Gold thrives in times of uncertainty. It is an important part of diversifying your savings. Now listen, here's how Birch Gold can help make it a part of yours. Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold. And it doesn't cost you a penny out of pocket. You want to learn more? Just text SAVAGE to 989898 for a free info kit. S-A-V-A-G-E, text it to 989898 and you get a free info kit. It costs you nothing. Just text SAVAGE to 989898. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of happy customers, I encourage you to arm yourself with the knowledge of diversification through precious metals. Protect yourself. Text SAVAGE to 989898 and claim your free info kit. Protect your savings with gold. Do it now. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Thank you very much. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Warning, the Savage Nation contains adult language, adult content, psychological nudity. Listener discretion is advised. And now, the world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture, and here he is, New York Times best-selling author and National Radio Hall of Fame inductee, Michael Savage. All right, folks, I have a special treat for you. It's a new feature on the Michael Savage podcast. In this time of war and stress, we're giving you something for Saturday. From our Savage Golden Vault, we have opened up this vault to play a couple of selections from the Savage family stories for your enjoyment. Even if you've heard them before, you'll hear them again. So sit back, relax, and get your mind off the horrors of the world and share it with five friends. I'm Michael Savage. Enjoy our new feature, The Savage Golden Vault. And thank you for your support. The story I'm going to tell you occurred when I was a young man. First a kid and then a young man. And it was about a man who grew up as my father's, one of my father's best friends in a very poor neighborhood in New York City. They were immigrants together. Their parents came over. They came over, I think, maybe on the same boat or they met each other in the slums of New York. And they, they both had a very tough life, and they worked their way up, little by little, little by little, as the immigrants have to do and as they struggle in the society. And this man went into a business that took off at a certain point, like a rocket. He hit a fad in a certain business, and he started to make a great deal of money, and he moved way beyond our family. While we lived in an attached house in Queens, New York, an attached brick house, he had the money to move his family to a detached house. <laughs> Remember how important that distinction was in those days is like the Buick LeSabre as opposed to the Buick Roadmaster. Well, God forbid you a Rockefeller, you bought an old, a Cadillac, if you can imagine. That's how people used to grade themselves in those days by their, success, you know, their status, cars and houses. I don't suppose it's much different today. It just isn't as easy to figure out in some regard, not on the road anyway. Anyway, so he moved to this uh, detached 
house in, in, in Roslyn, New York. And it was a beautiful house. It had its own garden all around it. We only had a little strip of grass in the backyard, a little teeny one in the front. And um, the carpet was wall to wall and it was pink. And he was a big cigar smoker. And we go over and visit. And I had a very good time. He would gloat, you know, with the cigar and lord it over my father. And we'd leave. My father never said anything against him. But, you know, I could see in his eyes that he was in his, you know, he was a little, let's say, you know, let's say he lost that little battle at that time. You know how men are. I mean, men are competitive. Even if they love their friend, if their friend does better than them, there's a degree of envy in every human being. It's just one of the cardinal sins. As years went on, the man's business continued to, to uh, thrive. And then I left home. I moved away from New York City. I went and did my thing collecting plants, working for my graduate degrees. Thousands of miles away. I was living 6,000 miles away, then 9,000 miles away in the Fiji Islands. And lo and behold, on one of my trips back to New York when I was already a father myself, I had heard that this man's business had collapsed entirely. The fad that he had rode like a wave had died. Women were no longer buying that particular product. And the man who had a chain of successful wholesale stores lost everything. He lost everything and it was so fast that he wound up living where he started on the Lower East Side of New York in a poor relative's apartment with his wife and the uh, relative's family back where he started in a one-room apartment. And that's where I come in. I come back from one of my trips to the Fiji Islands. I'm a young man in my, I don't know how old I must have been. I, I don't remember, 25, 30. I don't remember what, I, what age I was already anymore. And there he was sitting in my father's house, and I loved this man. I loved him like a, like you know another father. I loved all my father's friends, and you know how it is when you're a kid in a very close knit community. You tend to love the people like they're your own. You know, we all grew up so closely together. There was never a bad word between him and my father. Man, he's sitting there, shrunken up in the chair in my living room, where he had lost everything, and he looks up at me, still smoking a cigar, and he was shrunken in the chair. And he looks up at me in his eyes and he says, Michael, Michael, look what happened to me. Look what happened to me. And his eyes were like wandering left and right. He didn't understand what happened to him. And he said, I'd rather I have cancer than what God did to me. And lo and behold, lo and behold, I soon left New York. I went back to do what I did, which is collecting plants. And I heard that two years later, he died from one of the most rapidly uh, invasive forms of brain cancer. Be careful what you say. God hears the truth, but waits. Savage. Did I tell you about Louie? Yeah, I told you the story about Louie who bit, uh, got bitten by the monkey. That's boring. You heard it already. I told you about Louie, how to bend the nail. Did I tell you how to bend nails, how Louie taught me how to bend nails? I didn't tell you that story. Louie was an alcoholic who cleaned bronzes down in the basement there at my father's store. And, of course, I did it once in a while because my father needed another, you know, servant that he could get for nothing. My father had a simple theory since he was providing me with room and board. I had to work for him for nothing. What are you going to do? Go out with your friends? What do you think you are, an American? What do you think you're going to get over on me? So I have to go down in the basement and clean the bronzes. You know, nice little upbringing. So down there was an alcoholic from the Bowery that when he was not on a bender, my father gave him like a dollar an hour or something also to clean the bronzes. I got to like this alcoholic. He was a nice guy because when he was sober, he was an intelligent, sensitive guy. So over the years, Louis became a friend of mine. I confided in him a little. He was one of those like bimmies that, I don't know if they still exist, that type. You don't see them around. That very heavy drinking, quiet alcoholic, real skinny, 
There were certain kind of cheap white shirts that they would wear. They always had a cigarette dangling out of the right side of their mouth. It's, it's a lost type. And um, very, very uh, a rangy type of guy, you know. Not emaciated. And they were strong, too. They can, If you would think that they were weak because they looked, they weren't. They were strong as nails, these guys. Anyway, once in my entire life, my dad drove him to a house and he ate dinner with us. After dinner, I sat around a dining table with Louie. Uh, the alcoholic, and learned a few tricks, like how to bend nails with my bare hands. Now, remember this. Here I was, a skinny 12-year-old kid, and here was this long-haired, sallow-faced, sort of vagrant alcoholic teaching me how to use mind over matter. And he used to say to me, you see, Michael, here's how you do it. You take that long nail and you put it between your hands. You put both thumbs up against the center point of the nail, and with your other fingers, you pull down towards you. Now concentrate, he said to me, on the center of that nail. Don't break your concentration, he said. Push those thumbs straight at that center point of the nail and never for one millisecond lose your focus. He said, you'll soon feel the nail heating up right at the center point where you're concentrating and applying the pressure. This means the molecules in the nail are starting to move because of the pressure you're applying. That's the point at which you drive forward with your thumb and pull down with your hands a little more forcefully, he said. At that point, the nail will begin to bend. And listen, because it's tied to how we're going to beat the liberals. They're like a nail that you think you can't bend. But listen to this. Let me tell you something. It was truly amazing for me to learn how to bend nails with my bare hands from a man like Louis. He wasn't particularly strong. He wasn't exceptionally gifted. But he knew the secret of inner power. And if I could learn how to bend nails, anyone could. Likewise, while it appears the ACLU, the National Lawyers Guild, and other extremist liberal groups are hard as nails and unable to be bent, if all of us freedom and justice-loving Americans were to unite our energies and apply the proper pressures, I'm sure we could bend them like a two-penny nail. Savage. When I was a kid, every summer, I loved the summer. What kid didn't? Because in those days, you didn't go to summer school. You didn't go to a, a camp to advance your mathematical knowledge another to advance your sports knowledge in order to lose your your tubby waist you went and had fun for the whole summer and we were kind of poor so what we did was to get out of the hot inner city the family rented a small cottage with all the other families from the neighborhood and relatives up in the uh, cool mountains called the catskill mountains and they were known as bungalow colonies because you were got basically a one room kitchen bedroom bathroom boom and your whole family was in there but they were like all the whole thing was filled with your friends and their parents, so it became like a little village. Naturally, it was paradise, because every other parent was your parent, and you reverted back to like another time in history, so it was wonderful. We'd play Indians out in the woods, and we'd carve trees and make canoes. God knows what we did. So in one of these places, there was a guy who was a caretaker who lived in an old abandoned barn with his, with his wife, believe it or not. And he, he like mow, you know, mowed the lawn. He had the hammer, fixed the hammer. His name was Woodchuck Bill. And us kids, it was like a Tom Sawyer thing. We loved Woodchuck Bill. Kids loved. Now, remember, he was not a bum. See, today they're bum. They're a homeless. He was what was known as a, uh, a hobo in those days. And there were people who were hobos. They were sort of respectable in their own way. That was his job category. It was like hobo. He would put it on the IRS. Like, what do you do? Job category, hobo. I don't know what he made next to nothing. But he lived up in this, as I say, ramshackle bond-like structure with his he had a wife actually and woodchuck bill would regale us kids with his stories and he was a big guy with a big stomach on him 
So the story begins with him saying, all right, kids, come over here. Today, they probably arrest him for molestation just for even telling us a story. Some freak would arrest him. He says, all right, I want all of you to punch me in the stomach. Now, right away, that's rape today. It's a raping a child in some way. So we'd all go up with our skinny little arms. We were nine, eight, seven, and punch him in the stomach, and nothing would happen. So naturally, we thought he was Superman. He must have been pretty strong. I mean, when you think about it, because they're eight-year-old kids that can give you quite a belt even today. Anyway, so we all hit him, and we realized we were nothing compared to Woodchuck Bill. Then we'd sit at his feet, and he would tell us stories. He'd say, why? I, and I swear, I can remember to this day, he would say, well, I've seen hurricanes, and I've seen tornadoes. Well, we sat spellbound, like really out of a, uh, a book from the 19th century. So what I liked most about Woodchuck Bill was that he lived in this barn with almost nothing. He had his few pots and pans, him and a wife, and they hung from like uh, hooks over the thing, and they actually cooked in there. But he said he used to eat woodchucks. We'd say, Bill, what do you eat? He said, we, ate, we eat woodchucks. Who knows if he's telling the truth? I don't know if you can eat a woodchuck. And that's the uh, woodchuck Bill story. I mean, you wanted something more to it. There is nothing more. That's a jazz story. you got to understand jazz music to understand that story. It ends like boom, and the horn goes down. That's it. But unless you understand how jazz works, you're not going to be, like, satisfied because you want a beginning, a middle, and an end. And then Bill raped us, and he was taken away by Child Protective Services, and we lived miserably ever after. No, it didn't happen that way. Today, they'd arrest him for just being Woodchuck Bill. They'd give him treatment. they put him on a pill. And he'd probably go berserk and kill people in the, on the IRT, throw him on a third rail when the pill wore off. <laughs> Michael Savage, a host like no other. I got to tell a half-man, half-woman story in Long Beach. Uh... I'm not talking about the supervisors of San Francisco. I'm talking about a long time ago in New York City. Dad had a small antique store. I told you he sold clocks and figures and statues, mainly 19th century French. And some of it was very good. So amongst the many customers, one of them was a, a circus performer in the freak show of Ringling Brothers who, who uh, would get up there half man, half woman. I don't know. He had a breast. On one side and the other side, he didn't. I, I don't know how they with a half a beard. But, you know, after work, he was a regular person. And he lived in a house in Long Beach, like one of those little godfather houses. So dad would deliver the the, 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 the work after work. He delivered his own, you know, uh, sales. He didn't have a delivery boy. And I would, you know, I was the kid. I'd go along on the ride, whether it would be the DeSoto or the, the, uh, the Cadillac Model 62 with the statues in the back. And we pull up late at night because this guy didn't like to come out during the day. I'll never forget this as long as I live. So the circus guy, the half man, half woman, ring, ring, who's there? Blah, blah, blah. So the guy opens the door, but he can't open the door all the way. He can only open it a crack. Why can he only? And he has to like pull the door and push stuff to get. And the house is now littered with art objects in no particular order. Hundreds of statues and paintings on the floor, nothing hung right. He would buy one beautiful thing after another and just randomly put it on the floor like a warehouse. And what was that? Nobody knew. I knew. I was a kid who thought on those long rides out to Long Island and the long rides back, those long winter nights over the Williamsburg Bridge in the car with the sound of the, 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 the grated 
metal underneath the tire as your car went over it looking down from the childhood at the ships that came back from the korean war with the painting and the lst and then the brooklyn navy yard all the way through to this i figured out what it was this guy was a freak he was ugly in his own mind so he compensated for his ugliness by buying beauty and he needed to surround himself with beautiful things as much as possible in a compulsive way savage Monkeys rampage in Indian capital. Just after the Indian, weeks after the Indian's capital's deputy mayor toppled to his death fighting off a pack of monkeys, the animals are back on the attack, sparking fresh concerns about the simian menace. One woman was seriously hurt and two dozen other people were given first aid after monkeys rampaged through a neighborhood in East Delhi over the weekend. So the monkeys are out of control. Uh, rogue monkeys running into residences. Uh, I guess if I go on with the story, I'll be accused of simiophobia. And I'm liable to face a boycott from uh, some monkeys around the globe. And I, I can't afford that because if the monkeys were to boycott my products, there'd be no conservatives left to buy them, I suppose. <laughs> that reminds me of the monkeys going crazy. You know, many people, oh, they, they, everything they turn into cute. Everything's cute. A bear is cute. A monkey's cute. You know, this is such liberal stupidity. Monkeys are dangerous with big teeth. So it reminds me of Louis the monkey, Louis and the monkey story, which I told once at most in my in my tenure on radio. We go back now, ladies and gentlemen, put on your resting cap. We're going to go back in time. We're going back to the Lower East Side of New York. Dad owns a small antiques mart. Little old Michael's cleaning bronzes in the back, and there's Louis the Bum from the Bowery, who in those days, he was a drunk. He wasn't a bum. He worked. Dad would have him in on the weekends, and he'd clean the bronzes and whatever he did down there. I loved Louis. Louis was a great guy. But now you got to understand, this guy was a stoned alcoholic of the old school skinny like a rail white guy skinny like a rail smoked like unfiltered cigarettes but one of the nicest guys on earth he wears the rubber apron he's cleaning downstairs does the um the bronzes then of course i took over because dad wanted cheap child labor and where else are you going to get it from his son you know so i'm doing the things so i got to know louis over the years and he taught me various things like once once we had louis over to the house i never forget it i was so proud that my father took this guy who i liked all the way out to Queens and invited him to dinner. I don't know what came over. Maybe it was Thanksgiving or whatever. And Louis had dinner with us at the table. And the guy was surprisingly erudite. And he knew things. And like after dinner, we did games. And Louis the drunk showed me how to bend nails. He showed me mind over matter. He took a nail. And he showed me that if you put your fingers, blah, 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 and put your mind on it and keep up the pressure, the nail would bend. I was shocked because I was a skinny kid with little hands. And I bent the nail. And he taught me mind over matter, but it was all molecular because you put the heat and the pressure, blah, blah, blah. Eventually, that nail is going to bend. But I learned in life it's the same thing. It's all willpower, okay? Now, there's another element to the story. So, Louis is this kind of guy, interesting, but an alcoholic, and this and that. Years go by. He takes, he lives alone in Williamsburg. In those days, Williamsburg was like a slum, zero, you know, oil cloth city, leftover uh, apartments from the last century. No one wanted to be there but the poor. So he lives there alone. He's very lonely. He gets a monkey. He wants a monkey. Now, out of the world, nobody in those days had a monkey. Dogs, yes. Cats, yes. No. Who had a monkey in those days? Louis gets a monkey. But Louis don't just get a spider monkey, one of the skinny little monkeys. Louis gets a woolly monkey. Now, woolly monkeys are already strong. They got a chest on them. They got strong hands. And Louis in love with this monkey. For a couple of months, they're inseparable. Wherever he goes... There's the monkey, and the monkey's on his shoulder and where he's cleaning and he's happy. Now, Louis was the kind of guy 
that if he went to a bar in the Lower East Side, I remember the name to this day, named Hamelin Corn. Whatever money he made for my father, he'd take two minutes late, he'd be in the bar, and he'd throw money in a jukebox, and he would whistle and sing, and he'd buy everyone drinks till he was broke. He'd stumble out in the street, he would get hit by a car, sleep on a barrel, he didn't care, live for the booze, and that was it, but he had a heart of gold. So Louis gets the monkey, finally has someone to fill his empty nights, and as I say, they were inseparable. Well, as time went on, we get a call, Louis in the hospital, he's dying. What? The monkey went crazy in his apartment, attacked him, and almost ripped him to pieces. And he suffered for three, six months in the hospital, I don't know which hospital, probably Bellevue, because that's where they all wound up. And the monkey went at him and left. You don't know what a monkey's like when it goes crazy. You try to stop an enraged monkey without a weapon. He ripped his neck. He ripped his face. He ripped his arms. He ripped his leg. He ripped his crotch. He ripped his behind. Louis was ripped up pretty bad. And eventually, he, he took the monkey. I think he grabbed it and threw it out of the window. Uh, it just shows you. If he hadn't have done it, he'd be dead today, okay? But a liberal today probably would have tried to talk to the monkey. Louis knew that the instincts had to kick in. It was him or the monkey. And he decided it was better him than the monkey. He didn't consult a liberal book on how to deal with a crazed monkey. He just fought with it and killed it. I think that's what the bottom line is here. But the point is, is that even a lonely drunk needs companionship at night. In his case, he found the monkey. It was probably the right thing for him to do. But it goes back to the story I opened with, which is that the monkeys are rampaging in India. And the rogue monkeys are breaking into houses, including the daughters of the ruling Congress Party. They broke into the Indian parliament. Trouble boiled over in late October when the city's deputy mayor fell to his death, driving away monkeys from his home. He was on his balcony reading a paper when four monkeys appear, his family says. He waves a stick to scare them away, tumbles over the edge, and boom, he drops dead, falls off the balcony and dies. So right now you could see that Louis was a uh, pioneer in a way, in a sense that he understood that monkeys were dangerous long before they did in India when they turned into a sacred animal. <laughs> And that's the Louis and the monkey story. And that's it. That's the story. The bottom line is don't get a monkey as a pet. They're wild animals. The Savage Nation. It's Savage on Demand. We're trying to get down to a cultural phenomenon of, of uh, I call them crack pants. And I, I for the life of me, can't understand why anybody would want to deform their physique with such disgusting attire, to be frank with you. Now, I know this originated in the uh, ghettos amongst drug, dr drug dealers, as many fashions do. And then, of course, the drug addicts in the fashion business who ape the degenerates on the streets said, oh, oh, how cool. Let's make those pants. And then, of course, the white sheeple went along and they bought the pants and the rest is history. So now you got the cultural phenomenon of skinny white kids with pants falling down under their ugly behinds all over America. I have men emailing me saying, Mike, because of you, I'm going up to kids and saying, uh, kid, your pants are falling down. And by the way, I have found something out. No one says it to them. They have no father. They have a liberal mother or a mother to her credit who works too hard to even notice. Uh, and the fathers aren't around because no father would let a son wear a pair of pants like that. And if someone says to me, kid, your pants are falling off, usually they're embarrassed. I guarantee you they'll wear normal pants the next day. You know, so I grew up, I wore, I remember when I was in junior high school, I wore pegged pants with, you know, saddle stitched pegged pants. They cost a fortune. I was so, oh my God, it was like blackboard jungle, you know. I saved up for those pants. They were so cool. You know, they, they were uh, uh, on whatever. 
They were beautiful, like Salminio pants, okay? And I got into a schoolyard scuffle the first day I wore them because they were new. And a big kid pushed me down, and I remember ripping the pants in the knee. I was so heartbroken. I think for 10 years, I never got over that. I went to a tailor, and I said, he said, I have to weave it. I didn't know what a weaving was, but I knew it was more costly than I could afford. So I do understand that boys will wear bizarre outfits during the teen years. However, it was generally sized. So if you had a 26 waist, you bought a pair of pants 26. You didn't buy a pair that was a 46 that fell down under your behind. Nobody would do that. So why would people do that? They're fashion conscious. What is the meaning of this? I don't understand it. Maybe I don't understand culture. Maybe you could explain it to me. Savage. I had a nutty friend, a real SOB, a piece of garbage. He was a miserable rat. Even as a kid, a miserable rat because he had a crazy mother who was on Benzedrine to lose weight. She went to some crazy doctor in Jersey who put her on speed. She'd come back nuts. I mean, crazy. And she drive the pink Cadillac. They had a little more money than everyone else. The father was hardworking. She was a nothing. Always on Benzedrine and a wacko. She was so crazy that she would take a dog chain. She once did this and beat herself across the wrists and they were bleeding. So when the husband came home at night, like from working all day from some delivery route that he owned, he had a franchise, whatever. She came screaming. She said, Joe, Joe, look what your son did to me. Look what he did to me. And the father would go upstairs and he had a fist fight with the son because the crazy mother uh, said that the son uh, did this to her wrist when she did it herself. Can you believe this kind of situation? So I have no compassion for him. He was a rat before that. And he's still a rat. He's still a no good Nick. But he was a good friend of mine when I was in the fifth grade because who knows? You don't know people. And since I was sort of a, a mischievous child, naturally I sought out the more mischievous of the students, those who fidgeted the most, had the brightest eyes, and never listened to the teacher. They were my kind of people. Today already, they put us into Ritalin therapy and turn us into, into robots. I wouldn't be on the radio today. I'd be like an accountant somewhere in a, in a prison. I'd be counting underwear for a prison somewhere to make sure that the underwear didn't get stolen. But uh, the long and short was, yeah, the crazy mother. That doesn't excuse him for being nuts. As years went on, one of the kids in the neighborhood became a very famous two of them became famous rock and roll singers two out of queens i won't mention their names one had a big hit at 11 or 13 years old he was always more mature than us he had like women you know like guys at 13 like the guys with a pompadour and he had like a girlfriend 19 i never understood that we were still like dreaming this guy had like a woman you know she was 20 i don't know how they got that like through the music business so he went and did a tour this musician in japan at 14 dropped out of high school he had one song. It was a huge hit, like 145. I don't remember. And I, it wasn't Run Around Sue, but it was in that genre. So he goes to Japan, a big tour. The Japanese always liked American rock and rollers. Now he comes back. Now it's years later. Now he's on, on his behind. And uh, he's got nothing. So he becomes a U.S. postman. I swear to God, years later, the same rock and roller who had the Jaguar before anyone could even drive, the blue Jaguar, the cuff that stood out of the, the jacket, the pompadour became a postman there's nothing wrong with being a postman but you know you start out as a rock and roller and you end up as a postman that's a pretty hard row you know what I'm saying? it's better to start out as a postman and end up as a rock and roll star let me tell you he had a blue jaguar an xk140 mc drophead coupe to this day i want that car i have a ferrari i still want that 56 xk140 drophead coupe so that bad kid going back now to the bad kid whose mother beat herself on the arm 
So we like to uh, go around all over New York by subway. And we were like 12, 13. We went everywhere. 12, 13, 14, Manhattan, Hubert's Flea Circus, down in the bowels of the basement of the subways. There were guys selling like, they weren't porno magazines. They were soft core. And the old, you see the old geezers there lining up, looking at the magazines. We try to, like, you look at them. Hey, kid, get out of here. Get out of here, kid. Get out of here. You know, that kind of thing. So we used to like to go to Coney Island. And they had exhibits. I don't know how to describe it. They were like uh, mannequins of uh, wax figures. And there was, there was, some of them were scary as heck. Well, one of them was of George, Matetz, George Matetsky, the mad bomber of the, of the subway. And it was so lifelike. Like if you were a kid 12 and you had just been on a New York subway car in the heat for an hour and you went out to Coney Island, you stood outside one of those exhibits and you looked in, they showed him like in a jail cell. The guy looked like he was going to come out of the cell and strangle you. Well, adjacent to that mad bomber display, there was another guy. This scared me to this day. I have nightmares about him. It showed a guy, I don't know what he did, dismembered girls or women. I don't remember what he did. He was really bad, this one. And he looked like ordinary Joe, white guy, ordinary guy. And uh, they found him. I remember it was like a mad thing in New York. They didn't know what to do. Girls were being found dismembered. Finally, they tracked this nut down to a chicken farm in New Jersey. I don't remember his name. And he's got like a corpse in a trunk under the bed. I mean, the whole thing, man. So this exhibit in Coney Island of the wax figure shows this guy reconstructed in wax in a little room in the back of a chicken farm with a dismembered girl's body in a trunk and he's got like blood on his feet with like a blank stare at you and they show you like the feet and the hands and the blood it was stuff that today they could never ever show you but life was richer as a result for example they had freak shows in those days a genuine freak show is not so bad the freak had a job if i went to ringley brothers barnum and bailey i didn't go for the horse Oh, the elephant. I went for the freak show in the back. The one-breasted man, the half-bearded woman, the microcephalic. In other words, the people who today became politicians, in my day, they were in the back room of Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey without, without a Windsor nut. Or in another display, the same people today you might find on CNN or ABC or CBS, you know, where they're after some surgery, they were in the freak show too. You know, half man, half woman, half human, half uh, amoeba. And it was wonderful. I I like the whole thing. You eat the popcorn. You walk around. You you gape at the freak. You thank God that you're not like them. But the truth of the matter is, you say, well, it's exploited with the freak. No, if you ask freaks, I mean, a lot of them call them that today. You ask somebody a freak of nature like that. They liked being in a freak show. They made a good living. They were around other abnormal people. They had a little, you know, world, a social world. They had sex, uh, some of them, with each other. I'm, you know, they, they socialize. Today, what? They sit at home watching television on welfare? You think that's better for a freak? No. So there's something to be said for going back to the America of the 1950s. Please don't bring up the Civil Rights Act. Do me a favor. I mean, America of the 1950s with a Civil Rights Act. Can we move on now? Is a better country. Okay, everyone's equal, but give me back the freak show. And give me back the exhibit of the guy in the, uh, that a kid could see there with a nut. Because, you know, why should a kid see that? A kid should see that to understand there are dangers in the world. Certain people are really crazy and bad. Savage. Did I tell you about the uh, the chestnut man? I didn't tell you about the chestnut. Oh, there were a lot of crazy people in those days that were on the streets. Well, today they are too, but they're uh, holding microphones and they're uh, working for CBS. So 
One of our subway rides, cold, nasty, miserable, snowy winter day slush, 11 years old, dressed up like smoke coming out of your mouth that was so cold. Your face was red. Your hands could freeze if you took a glove off. I love that weather. So there was like a Bimmy who sold uh, uh, chestnuts outside the, uh, I used to love the Museum of Natural History. I loved the Mastodon. I liked the gem collection. I, I didn't know it in those days. It shaped a lot of my future to show you the greatness of our culture. When I'd go to the Museum of Natural History as a kid and I saw exhibits of a natural scene from the Fiji Islands with birds, little did I know that years later I would actually seek out that kind of thing in my life professionally, shaped no doubt in part by the great cultural institution of the Museum of Natural History. Of course, this is all lost today on the, um, uh, the Islamo-fascists and the TV generation and the internet and iPod. I don't know what these children are going to become. What is their dream? What kind of dreams do these idiots have? I haven't any idea. It's very sad that children have no, no dreams, no nothing. They think everything's in, you know, like, oh, okay, I'll give you another example. Oh, so the chestnut man, then I have another story from last night. I'm going to tell you the last night's story before the chestnut story. After work, I went on one of my one-hour walks around downtown San Francisco. I need to burn off energy. Hat tilted low, collar up, anonymous. No one knows me. Till I open my mouth, then heads turn. So I don't say anything. So I like to go and look into restaurants and bars, and I like seeing people going home and the hustle and bustle. It's kind of a fun thing. It's a conclusion of the day for me to see that in this gorgeous, beautiful city of San Francisco. So one of the places I stop in is like this uh, Shishi Hotel. It's got a bar scene. I like to see the hubbub and the scene. I, I never liked the bar scene when I was young, and I'm not in the bar scene, but I like to watch it sitting in the lobby. So I'm sitting in the lobby on a chair, and the bar thing is over there. Hundreds of people, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the kids in their 30s are looking. Everyone's a seven in there, which is actually why it's more fun. They probably go home with each other. Sevens go home with each other. The nines and tens go home, you know, to psychopathic behavior. The sevens at least go home with each other because they don't think they're God. So it's a place packed with sevens, and I'm sitting in a chair outside in the lobby and I'm watching the comings and goings every girl that comes through the lobby pulls out a cell phone and even though they're alone they're all looking in the cell phone talking they're making believe that they have somebody they're waiting for that's the latest gimmick and they think someone's buying into it that if you pull out a cell phone it means you missed the dates late and you're there and you're busy and you're popular and they're all staring in it like a text message they're looking like inside a fortune teller's crystal to see if they can find a, a visage of the truth inside this little instrument in their hand is how it struck me. If I were like from another planet looking in, I said, what kind of madness is this? What kind of species is this that young females who are searching for husbands to settle down and have children are walking around with a device in their hand. And instead of talking to a man, they're talking to this device in their hand and looking at it and staring in it as though it's the Holy Grail itself. Now to go back to the chestnuts in the open fire. We're outside the museum, freezing slush cold, and one of these bimmies is selling chestnuts. On the, you know, And they're delicious. Man, they roast them out there. Do they still do that? I don't even know if they allow them anymore. And the guy, I'm with my friend, we're 11, and he, he turns out, he says to us, hey, you guy, he talked a weird voice. He was a big guy. He looked like the guy that George Michaels was allegedly cavorting with in a park there in London that got hushed up, like on the, you know, the rough trade type. But a little like lower class than that, even a little more nutty. And he says, hey, you kids want to see pictures of girls? So right away, I knew he was a dangerous guy. So we play him along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where do you got those pictures? You kids come with me. Come with me. It's only a subway ride. We'll sh I'll show you those pictures. We didn't go with him, but we knew that he was a pervert. 
Savage.